What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. I'm your host, Andrew Neuer, coming at you on a Thursday afternoon on December 8th. That's the sweet sound of a farm girl lift bridge. Lift bridge. Send me a tweet of your drink of choice. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the Wolves and how they look without Carl Anthony Towns. I'm then going to recap slash preview the Vikings, Jets, and Lions game. And then, of course, we're going to end things talking about the Minnesota Twins, an update on the offseason and where things might be headed. So, let's talk some Minnesota sports. Today's episode is brought to you by Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty. The real estate economy right now is crazy, and it's the perfect time to sell your house. Whether you're looking to sell, invest in real estate, or find your next dream home, then Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty is your guy. Eric is committed to bringing you an experience that goes beyond just buying or selling a home. If that sounds like you, give Eric Molsather a call at 651-357-6528 or email him at eric.molsather at cbrealty.com. That's eric with a K dot M-O-L-S-A-T-H-E-R at cbrealty.com and tell him Andrew sent you. Let's talk about your Minnesota Timberwolves, the... 500 Minnesota Timberwolves, but are two and one in the games without Carl Anthony Towns. And no, this is not a podcast going to be talking about the Timberwolves should trade Carl Anthony Towns. It's been three games. If it's been three games and you're saying trade Carl Anthony Towns, well, then I think you're just being irrational and thinking, well, since we're two and one, that means we'll be four and two in six games, and then we'll be eight and four in the next 12, whatever. The Wolves have looked better without Carl Anthony Towns, but it's not because of Carl Anthony Towns. Like I said before, that Memphis Grizzlies game when they won 109 to 101, it's that game would have been, if the Wolves win that game, it's like a 130 to 124 type of game instead of it being a low scoring. With Rudy Gobert, it's going to be a better defensive team. It's going to be a slower. It's going to be a little bit slower. It's going to be the offense will look a little better. Wait. Okay, I just got that wrong. Just rewind everything I just said there. The defense will be better. It'll be a little bit slower, but the offense will be not as good. And that's because you're replacing Rudy Gobert with Carl Anthony Towns. Or you're replacing Carl Anthony Towns with Rudy Gobert. Whew. Okay. The Wolves are 2-1 tw- and one over that catless stretch. They are tied for, and this is, these stats are all the last three games without Cat. They're tied for third in the NBA in points per game at 119.3. They're fourth in field goal percentage at 48.7, 21st in three point percentage at 32.6. And before I get a little bit too far into it, it makes sense that their field goal percentage is higher. D'Angelo Rosso has been shooting well, Ant has been shooting well. And then, of course, you have Rudy Gobert, who primarily shoots at the rim. He's not taking any 10-foot jumpers. So the field goal percentage should be high. It should be efficient if you're replacing a three-point shooting big man for a guy who shoots everything one foot away from the hoop. The 21st and three-point percentage makes sense. The Wolves have struggled from deep this season, and losing your best three-point shooter obviously doesn't help your cause. 
Now, even with Cat, the, the Wolves' three-point shooting has not been great. It's been in the lower half of the league. But it makes sense that it has not improved in that statistic. With Carl Anthony Towns, over an 82-game season, I'd imagine that percentage is a lot higher. Though, Cat has not been shooting the three at a good level this season. But, again, I do think that that comes around. You don't win the three-point contest. You aren't marked as the argument of, is he the best shooting big man of all time? Like, you're going to get that back. It just doesn't go away. Now, the Wolves are 23rd in rebounding. Without Cat, they are grabbing 41.3 rebounds a game. They are 28th in defensive rebounding at 30.3 and 12th in offensive rebounding at 11 even. With Cat, it's a little better in terms of numbers, but it's not marginally better. With Cat, they rank... 14th in rebounds at 43.5, so about two two more rebounds per game. They are 12th in defensive rebounding at 33.4 and 18th in offensive rebounding at 10. So the offensive rebound went down by one, and the defensive and rebounding numbers went up just a little bit. And that makes sense. You have a smaller lineup out there. And in two of those games, you were running Wendell Moore instead of, obviously, Kyle Anderson, who did start in that third game. So the defensive rebounding, or just the rebounding in general, is going to be worse without another 7-footer on the floor. Offensively, the, def- the offensive rating has been 111.2. They're 12th in defensive rating at 110, and they're 13th in an overall net rating of 1.1. With Cat, I didn't put, I didn't put up, down the numbers because it's like a one-point difference in each statistic, so... It's a little worse with Cat on the floor, but it's not marginally better. So the Wolves have looked better in other categories without Cat, and they've also they've also what's the word I'm looking for? Regressed a little bit without Cat, and that makes sense. You're playing a completely different style. You're playing, and it's only been a three game stretch versus what fifteen with Cat or whatever it's been, or I guess they're twelve and twelve. I don't wow math. Okay, so they so twenty one games with cat essentially or twenty whatever. I'd like to see these, and we'll we'll compare these numbers as the weeks go on without cat and what it looks like overall by the time Carlin Jones comes back. I will talk about that on the podcast, or I'll write an article talking about whether or not it's a cat issue or not. To me, though, it's too early to tell. It's you can sit here and be like. Well, the Wolves are better without Carl Anthony Towns. Like they've, like the Wolves players have said, it's not that it's better. It's just simple. And that's because you're running one big out there instead of running two centers. Moving on to Anthony Edwards. And this is kind of what I'm going to get to in a second, but Anthony Edwards has been playing incredible over the last three games. Against the Memphis Grizzlies, 29 points, 5 assists, 3 boards, 5 steals, 3 blocks. Against the Thunder, 26 points, 4 assists, 3 boards, 6 steals. And against the Pacers last night, he had 26 points, 8 assists, 8 boards, 6 steals. Now at one point I'm pretty sure he had 7, but they must have reviewed it and then took it away from him. But what I'm getting at is, is it Anthony Edwards' team now? Every year that Anthony Edwards has been on this team for the last 2 
two and a quarter seasons, whatever. It's been Carl's team. And it's been Carl's team for the last seven, eight plus years. And that's fine. Cat has been their most talented player. It's not like the Wolves had another player on the roster and they built around that guy or they should have been building around that guy. Like Carl Anthony Towns has been their best player. Carl Anthony Towns is still their best player. However, it's hard to win games with your center being your number one option. And we've seen what Anthony Edwards can do. Yes, they are two and one, but there are other things that go into it. But a huge reason the Wolves have been winning these games is Anthony Edwards has taken the leap essentially over the last three. He's kind of taking that third year leap and taking advantage of Carlton Towns is not in the lineup. I need to do more to help my team win games. And even with Carlton Towns back, it can still include like in air quotes, it can still be Carlton Towns team where the offense needs to run through and, and cat can do all the other things. He's so talented. He can rebound. He can pass. He's been their best passer, arguably, this season. Now, Delo's numbers have been got, have gone up the last seven games, but Carl Anthony Towns has been their best facilitator. He's been a good rebounder-ish this year. The numbers are down a little bit efficiency-wise scoring, but he is still their most talented player. Those two can be true. It can still be Ant's team while Cat is still the best player. Look at all the teams that run. I've been talking about this, I feel like, every week. Look at the NBA teams that have success. Aside from the Nuggets and the Sixers, every team plays through their guard slash forward. You just win games playing that way. Jokic and Embiid are incredible. And there's a reason that the Sixers and the Nuggets have success, but there's still something missing. Like, do you think that if you were getting a prime James Harden or Jamal Murray doesn't tear his ACL. Maybe his trajectory goes up or the Nuggets have a different guard on their team. Do you think that the the Nuggets and the Sixers would have a lot more success with Embiid and Jokic being a really, really, really good number two and having the offense essentially kind of take over by a guard or a forward? To me, that makes sense. I guess other people probably have varying opinions, and I'd love to hear that take on it. But if you look at it, you have Luka, you have Jason Tatum, Steph, the list goes on, Devin Booker. I can go down the list and just talk about teams running through a guard slash forward. You just have more success. So when Cat returns, I would love to see the Wolves look at this and be like, okay, over the last month, month and a half, we have looked really good running the offense through Anthony Edwards. And at times throughout the season, and even in the past, it kind of felt like it's been mostly run through Cat, and that's fine. He's a, he's a great offensive player. But if they want to take that next step, it's going to have to come through Anthony Edwards. Because this season, it's really felt like a lot of, okay, D'Angelo Russell pick and roll with Carl or Rudy. And then it's been like getting Rudy or Carl Anthony Towns the ball. And it needs to flow through Anthony Edwards. Have him bring up the ball more. D'Angelo Russell has been great. I'm not even discrediting him because he has been incredible. But Anthony Edwards should have the ball in his hands the majority of the time. And not that I want him to take 30 shots a game, but having him in that right mindset of, okay, I'm going to take the most shots. I'm going to take over offensively. That is what I want. 
what does it look like if the Wolves continue to win games because of Anthony Edwards with Carl Anthony Towns out of the lineup? And Dane Moore kind of talked about how like you get more media recognition. You have an all-star game. You get all-star game votes and maybe he even makes it because if the Wolves are playing well over this stretch, they're easily going to see and see why. And it's Anthony Edwards, the number one pick, the flashy player, the guy that everyone loves to hear do post-game interviews with. He's going to get a lot of media recognition. He's going to probably get voted into the All-Star game. And that is almost like, it's almost like a blessing in disguise having Carl Anthony Towns out because now Ant will start to get more media attention. He will also, this accelerates his development and the Wolves are probably being, they're probably getting a little bit more insight to what a team led by Anthony Edwards is. So with Cat coming back, you can still run the ball through Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns can be that really, really, really good number two. There's nothing wrong with Cat being the number two. He can still put up 22, 23 points a game on 39, 40% shooting from the three. That is completely fine. And then you can have Anthony Edwards controlling the ball most of the game and putting up 28, 29 points a game like you see Devin Booker do. You see Jason Tatum do on a night-to-night basis. Another thing I wanted to hit on with Anthony Edwards and his leadership, Dane Moore kind of talked about this too on his podcast where Anthony Edwards is now starting to, if you look at him on the floor, I've never seen Anthony Edwards do this though. If you're watching on TV, if you're at the game, you can see Anthony Edwards talking to the players and telling them where they need to be. He's essentially like quarterback in the team and telling them where he where they need to be to succeed and where he wants to be to succeed. And that is great because we haven't seen that from Anthony Edwards yet. You know, this is his third year. He is 21. But we have not seen Anthony Edwards kind of take over. Where you like you see John Rant in the third year. He is the guy telling people what to do at such an early age. Anthony Edwards has not done that. And I think that's also because there are like Anthony Edwards was brought into a team that has had a lot of talented players. It's not like in the past where Wiggins got traded here and it was just like, okay, here you go, Andrew, like you can take over. And then when cat came aboard, it was just like, okay, cat, like you go do your thing. Like Anthony Edwards has never been given the keys fully yet. And now we're starting to see what that looks like. And I went to the thunder game. And unfortunately that was a terrible game to go to, but I even saw, like, you can see it again on TV. He's talking to the players. He's leading them. And one thing that I noticed that in that Thunder game, when the Wolves did something crazy, the bench got all hyped up. They were going crazy. And, of course, if you step on the floor, the NBA will now call you for, what is it, a technical now? And Anthony Edwards realized that and was holding the players back to make sure they wouldn't go on the floor and start celebrating. And that to me is incredible because I feel like two weeks ago, Anthony Edwards would have been the first guy on the floor dancing around, having fun. But instead, he was still celebrating, but also holding his teammates back so that they wouldn't take the fall. And that's something that to me is incredible to see from Anthony Edwards. He's taken the lead. He's really taken these last three games. He's taken the bull by the horn, essentially. I want to see more leadership. I want to see this consistently. And if he can do that, there's no reason this Wolves team can have long-term success or that Anthony Edwards won't get his first All-Star game nomination. 
let's close things talking about the talking about D'Angelo Russell and his last seven games. The Wolves need D'Angelo Russell to come alive with Carl Anthony Towns out of the lineup. With Cat, he was arguably probably their number three option. Although they've been kind of playing like Rudy Gobert is their first, second, third. But D'Angelo Russell needs to come alive offensively, and he has. And over the last seven games, D'Lo started the season off poorly. He was virtually unplayable. I and many fans were just saying, start Jordan McLaughlin. D'Lo obviously is not the answer in the starting lineup. And I will admit that I am probably wrong because this looks like D'Angelo Russell and something we've seen him do last season or something we've seen in that Brooklyn Brooklyn year where he won to the All-Star game. But over the last seven games, he's averaging 19.6 points, 7.6 assists, three rebounds, 1.4 steals, 49% from the field, 34.7 from three, and 90% from the free throw line. He's playing hard. He's not making as many mental mistakes, but he still has that. He still has a couple errors. He is a little careless, but for the most part, what I really want to say is that D'Angelo Russell is putting 100% effort into each game, and he's playing defensively like it matters. So not only is efficiency gone up, but he has sort of taken over and essentially been like, I'm going to shoot efficiently. I'm going to get others involved and I'm going to play defense and I'm going to give you guys effort every single night. And that's all we've been asking for, for D'Lo. We're not asking him to go out there and score 25, 26 points a night and dish out nine, 10 assists. All we're asking for is effort, efficient 15 to 20 points a night, get your teammates involved and that'll lead to success. So the Bulls are two and one. They look good without Cat, but again, this is not a Cat. We're not going to bash Cat for this because the Wolves, I think, are just coming more alive because of a one-center lineup. Now let's talk about the New York Jets game and the Minnesota Vikings. Defense, defense, defense. The Vikings gave up 22 points, but it could have easily been way more. The amount of times the New York Jets were in the red zone, they were in the red zone six times, I guess. They were one for six. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But I just want to say, like, the Vikings defense, yeah, they gave up 22. But that could have been 35. That could have been 40. The amount of times they were there and all they kept getting were field goals, field goals, field goals. You have to give the Vikings credit for their defensive performance. Like I said, the Jets were one of six in the red zone with the one being a Mike White rushing touchdown. And that happened on fourth down and he barely got in. We could be talking about an 0-6 effort for the Jets in the red zone. They had two interceptions on the night, or on the afternoon. Cam Bynum obviously got the game-winning pick, and he got it when it mattered most. The Ben Don't Break model, well, Ben Don't Break motto is really helping. It's not perfect. They may give up a lot of yards, but they do come up big when they need you most. They allowed six field goals, which it. How many games are we going to have where the opposing kicker just becomes like the best kicker to ever step on the field? And then instead, we're, we still got Greg Joseph and he's missing 50 plus yarders. And I don't know. I will never understand the Minnesota Vikings kicking curse, but. It doesn't matter. They got the victory when it mattered, when it all when it was all said and done. 
the Vikings defense did give up a couple big plays, but that but they did they did settle in when they needed them most. And then uh, again, the one for six in the red zone, but the two the Jets had two perfect chances to get into the end zone on those last two drives, and the Vikings shut them out. Offensively, not the best game for Kirko. 21 for 35, 173 yards, one touchdown. He did have a solid drive, though, to put the Vikings up to 27 points. But he missed a lot of throws. There's a lot of plays where he should have. We're on an, a usual afternoon. Those are plays that Kirk Cousins will hit. And if he hits those, who knows what the score is going to be. Maybe it's 35, and then the Jets kind of just flounder away. But the Vikings missed a lot of opportunities on offense, and Kirk Cousins just wasn't throwing the ball well. There's a lot of miscommunication and just a lot of balls that were not even thrown competitively. There's, he should have had, he didn't have any interceptions, but he probably should have had at least two. One thing that I will give Kirk Cousins credit for is that I think he did well with pressure. The Jets kind of were in the backfield a lot, and usually when we've seen Kirk Cousins just get absolutely pressured, like we've seen with the Bills, we've seen with the Eagles, the Cowboys. Kirk Cousins starts throwing interceptions. He starts making really bad plays. And although he did miss a lot of passes, I would say that Kirk Cousins did well with pressure in the sense that he addressed that a player's going to come and hit him, and he threw the ball away and used just high IQ football in those situations. Now, the Vikings win this game because of the run game, and Dalvin Cook was great. Also, shout out to Alexander Madison for the touchdown and, of course, the celebration. But Dalvin Cook and the run game was good. And this kind of felt like a Dalvin Cook game of the past where a lot of burst, he found the open hole, and when he found the open hole, he kind of just darted. 20 carries, 86 yards, a rushing touchdown. And the pass game was bad, but Cook was good. And when they needed him most, like when their passes, they were just incomplete or they're going three and out. The only thing that was working was Dalvin Cook going for four or five yards of carry and sort of giving the offense some sort of hope or at least some movement to at least, if not advance the chains, but get something going. Because if they kept going three and out, it was constantly first first and 10, second and 10, third and 10, punt. That takes a toll on your team offensively, and Dalvin Cook was able to get some yards on the ground and they don't win this game without his efforts. Okay, so it is like week 14, but I want to see Jalen Rager get more involved. And maybe it's too late to even get him involved instead of KJ Osborne. But I would like to see him utilized in deep passes or jet sweeps. In that Jets game, he had one catch for 38 yards and he had a rush for eight yards. And that catch that he had, he came all the way back to catch the ball. That was an underthrown pass by Kirk Cousins, but Jalen Rager came back and found it. And KJ Osborne has kind of shown up when you need him too, but I think that this offense could be more lethal and harder to stop if Jalen Rager is being utilized. Let's preview the Lions game. I'm not going to go over this too extensively because we've already talked about the Lions once already in a preview. So we'll kind of just review what kind of happened in the past and where the Lions are at right now. But when the Wolves, not when the Wolves, but when the Vikings played the Lions, they were obviously coming off that 
game against the Philadelphia Eagles where they lost by like three was like a 38 to 35 loss. And everyone's kind of thinking like, Oh shit. Like are the lions good? And then the Vikings come in, it's cold. The lions are up and you're like, okay, so maybe that game was not a, a joke. Or were the Lions 2-0? Yeah, because the Vikings played, I guess, the Packers. and the, I mean, not the Packers and then the Eagles. But you're looking at the Lions were 1-1 one one at that time or something. And they obviously had the one loss. was a really close game to the Eagles. And the Vikings got blown out by the Eagles. So you're thinking, okay, the Lions might be for real. They're up on the Vikings. And then, of course, Minnesota comes back like they, we will be seeing all season. But right now, the Lions are 5-7. and seven. If the Vikings win, they clinch a, or I guess if they win or tie, the Vikings clinch the NFC North. And again, I think they will. I don't think it's really much of a question at this point, but it could still happen. If they win this Sunday, the Vikings win the NFC North. So the Lions are five and seven. They've won four out of the last five. Their one loss was against the Buffalo Bills on Thanksgiving, where it was a competitive loss. They only lost 28 to 25. So you're looking at their last five games. They're four and one with the one loss being a really competitive. That game goes a little differently. You're talking about a 5-0 and Lions team. Now, the offense is great. And, of course, the Lions offense was really good in the beginning of the season, and then they were averaging the most points per game. I put money on them to score the most points in that week, and they put up a goose egg. So maybe I should try it again this week and see what happens. Worst case, the Lions score the most points. And the Vikings lose. Best case, I win money. Or no, worst case. Oh, wow. Okay, so best case, the Vikings win. Worst case, the Lions put up the most points. The Vikings lose, but I win money. So we'll try that maybe again. Either way, I'll end up happy, I guess, in a sense. But the Lions offense has been really good. Jamison Williams, the first-round pick wide receiver out of Alabama, the player who tours ACL, really good, really talented player will be a focal point for many years to come if he can get his knee right. He did play his first game last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars. He had one target, no receptions, but he only played in eight snaps. And again, they're not going to just throw their first-round pick out there after an ACL tear. They're going to ease him back in. So we might be able to see a little bit more Jamison Williams this time around. And then, of course, their best wide receiver, Amon Ross St. Brown. He is a stud. I talked about that in the in my preview a couple weeks ago when they played the Lions. He catches a lot of his passes over the middle. And when the Vikings played same the Lions, St. Brown caught the majority of his passes off the middle, and then he basically ran towards the sideline and went up the field. He gets the majority of those passes there. And the Vikings struggle in that area of the field. So again, probably expect another big game from him. He has the 830 yards and six TDs on the season. Over the last couple games, DJ Chark has been getting a lot of shine. And then, of course, you have Khalif, Khalif Raymond, who will give you about 30 to 50 yards a game. Jared Goff has been really good over this last five games for the Lions. He's had a solid season. It's nothing spectacular, but he deserves a lot of credit for the Lions' success recently. He has 19 touchdowns, seven interceptions. The last time he threw an interception was on November 6th against the Green Bay Packers. He's thrown five touchdowns and zero interceptions over that stretch. So in a month, he's not throwing an interception. Hopefully, the Vikings get their hands on him, and he throws a terrible pass for probably another Harrison Smith interception. Jamal Williams, probably 
bet the over on a touchdown this week. He's a touchdown machine. He had two touchdowns the last time he faced the Minnesota Vikings. He's got 14 touchdowns on the season, which is the most in the NFL. And over the last four games, he has six. He's averaging 4.1 yards per carry. And he's sort of just taken over the number one role for the Lions out of the backfield. DeAndre Swift has not been getting as many touches. He's been getting about five or so per game. Last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars, he did have 14. But for the most part, DeAndre Swift is going to be more featured in the pass game. The Lions defense is still trash. Not been good. The rush defense ranks 28th. They're they're giving up about 149.7 yards per game. The last time the Vikings played them, Cook had 17 carries for 96 yards and a touchdown. Madison had seven carries for 28 yards and a touchdown. So again, expect Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison to have another good game because the Lions essentially cannot stop anyone in the run game. The pass defense has not been good either. They're, they rank 27th. They're giving about 252.5 yards per game. And of course, they're giving up the most points out of any team in the NFL. Right now, they rank 32nd. They're giving up 27 per game. The last time the Vikings played them, of course, it was a 28-24 to victory. So expect a high-scoring game because the Vikings do kind of give up a lot of yards and points at times. And the Lions, they're, they have probably the worst defense in the NFL, and they're getting carried by their offense. But right now, I predict the final score to be the Vikings 35, the Lions 33. I think it's going to be another heart racer, but hopefully it results in a win. Let me know what you guys think the final score is going to be. You can send me a tweet at Let's Talk Vikes. Skull. Okay, let's close things off talking about the Minnesota Twins and then, of course, MVP, rough week, and underrated. But let's start with the Minnesota Twins here. Luis Arise has been the topic of discussion this whole week. Um, Dan Hayes of The Athletic kind of dropped a report saying the Minnesota Twins are shopping their batting title winner. So the question, I guess, now is, should they trade him? And I guess, what is the cost of doing so? And so I wrote an article at Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. I also tweeted at Let's Talk Twins. But I kind of just talked about the pros and cons, essentially, to trading Luis Arise. Luis Arise is under team control for the next three years. It'll be 2026 when he's an unrestricted free agent. And at that time, he will be 29. So still in the midst of his prime. And the beauty of Luis Arise's game is that he does not rely on power to have success on offense. So no matter, you know, he could be 35, 36, and I still think he's going to be hitting 270, 280, 300, whatever. Because he relies on contact and his, uh, his plate discipline and his vision at the plate is incredible. It's elite. And Luis Arise, obviously he won the AL batting title, but... His impact on the clubhouse has to be considered. And I think you kind of just like look at it. It's like kind of like playing 2K in a sense where it's just like we're going to plug and play all the best players and we're going to put them on the lineup without even considering fit or kind of what kind of impact that would have on other players. So like you look at the Josh Donaldson signing, for instance, I was a big fan of it. But you, it was clear that the players necessarily didn't get along with him. And that, in turn, kind of ruined the clubhouse vibes and the Twins' play went down. Same thing kind of with Nelson Cruz when he was gone. It sort of just felt like a big hole was missing out of the Twins when they were playing. 
And that has an impact. And it's the same thing with Luis Arise. He's the heart and soul of this team. Players love him. He's a fan base favorite. And trading him would have an immense impact on the clubhouse and the overall morale of the team. And so why, I guess the question becomes, why are you trying to trade a 25-year-old AL batting title winner? Well, yes, he is 25. He, the reason the Twins are actively shopping him versus Jorge Polanco, um, Alex Kirilov, whatever, is because Luis Arias has value. He's under team control for three years, which has, obviously, teams are looking for that. He's also young. But the reason the Twins are considering it is because where does he line up defensively? You have Jose Miranda, who's likely going to go play at third now with Gio Urshela out of the picture. Then maybe Carlos Correa, whatever. We'll get to him in a minute at short. Then you have Jorge Polanco at second, Alex Kirloff or whatever at first. Long term, it makes sense to have AK at first base because he's he has power. He's going to be better defensively. Though I will say Luis Arise looked good defensively at first base, better than I would have ever imagined him to. And so let's just say you trade Jorge Blanco. Well, now you're losing. Luis Arias is not the best second baseman defensively. The Twins are better when Polanco is lined up in the field. And the same thing, you're, if he's not good at second base, he's going to be even worse as shortstop. So sure, you can put Jorge Polanco at short and Luis Arias at second if you missed out on Correa. But it's hard to imagine where Luis Arias plays and then you're kind of moving him around. Is he the DH this day? Is he the first baseman? Is he the second, third, short, whatever? And sure, you can have a utility player, and that's I would be okay with that. Luis Arias is a really good player. But he also has dealt with injuries throughout his whole career. He's been dealing with leg injuries his entire career. And last offseason, he worked out with Nelson Cruz to increase his leg strength. And we saw it improved. But towards August and September, his batting average dropped. So he's hitting plus 300, high 300s, whatever. And then comes April and September when his legs start to get a little bit more tired. He's starting to feel a little bit more pain. His numbers drop down to like 250, 270, whatever, around that general area. And so you want the best out of your players down the stretch. And Luis Arise was great. But he did have those problems for the Twins, and he didn't come up big when they needed him at times. So he's already 25. You have three years of team control. You're not sure where he lines up defensively. He has leg injuries. How is that going to hold up over a five-year period? Where do you see Luis arise in five years? He could still be with the Twins, hitting 300, maybe winning another batting title, going a couple all-star games. And that's all could be very true. Or Luis arise could just be a solid player for another team as a utility guy. Not much defense there. Good clubhouse guy. But if you can move him for a clear-cut number one, do you take that option? And that is what the Timberwolves are kind of wondering here. Not the death of the Timberwolves. I meant to say the Twins. And that's what the Twins are wondering. And it's tricky because I don't want to see I don't want to see Luis Arise go. But if you're going to get a clear-cut number one, I think you have to do it. The Twins have a starting rotation of Sonny Gray, Tyler Malley, Joe Ryan, Bailey Ober, etc. You can go up and down the list. They have a bunch of guys that are kind of fringe, but they have a bunch of guys that are just a number two, a number three, 
type of player on a really good rotation. Like Sonny Gray and Tyler Malley are really good number twos or threes on other World Series contending teams. So if you're going to trade Luis Arias, it makes no sense to trade him for a player like Pablo Lopez, who Ted reported today, but I'm not going to trust a Ted source until I see it come true. So if you're going to trade him for Pablo, I just almost hit the mic over. If you're going to trade him for Pablo Lopez, Pablo Lopez is good. But where does that, does that really drastically improve your starting rotation? Sure, he might be their best pitcher or Tyler Malley. It's one of the two. But he's not a clear-cut number one. And if you trade Luis Arise, you're also going to have to trade. It's not going to be a one-for-one. You're going to have to give up a prospect or two in the trade. So why add another two or three to the rotation when you need a number one? If you're in the playoffs, you need someone to go out there who you feel confident in to steal that game one. Tyler Malley's fine, but where would he rank amongst other starting pitchers on a game one? Probably bottom two, bottom three. Pablo Lopez doesn't do it for me. If you're going to trade Luis Arise, I think you need to call the Milwaukee Brewers. Ask him about Brandon Woodruff. Ask him about Corbin Burns. And I wrote about this in the article. Milwaukee's saying those guys are off limits. Everyone has a price. The Brewers have been doing business. They're making a lot of interesting trades. One of the most interesting trades that recently happened is they traded their second baseman, Colton Wong. Luis Arrives can plug you can plug him in there, have him play second for the Brewers. You give up another prospect, a high-end prospect, and you get back Corbin Burns or Woodruff. Obviously, you're asking for Corbin Burns because he's their better pitcher. But if you get Brandon Woodruff, now you have a clear cut number one, and your rotation is now Burns or Woodruff, Tyler Malley, Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, and then Chris Paddock in two years or whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, Bailey Ober, Louis Varland. Things are starting to come to fruition. So at this moment, I would trade a Louis Arise if it meant that you're getting a clear cut number one. If you're not getting a clear cut number one, there's no reason in doing the deal. So the Twins potentially looking to trade for Pablo Lopez, great. But if it's for Luis Arise, that doesn't make any sense to me. Let's talk about Christian Vasquez. The Twins have an offer on the table for him. Uh, Darren Wilson reported that earlier this week. Christian Vasquez is obviously a catcher, a position of need for the Twins, a major position of need for the Twins. They're not retaining. They're not bringing back Gary Sanchez. So now you're left with Ryan Jeffers, and Ryan Jeffers should not be your everyday catcher. He has potential, but I think we know what he is at this point. Christian Vasquez is a two-time World Series winner. He is 32 years old, but his defense, the Twins' defense has not been great behind the plate. They allow so many players to steal on them, and Christian Vasquez is one of the better defenders in baseball. And he obviously helps the he helped the Houston Astros and their pitching staff, and of course was a big part of their World Series win. Now with the Boston Red Sox, he hit 282. He had an OPS plus of 109. With the Astros, he was 250. He batted 250, but his OPS dropped to 68. And I don't know if that's just a change because Trey Mancini was an All Star, was playing really well. He went to Houston and he struggled. And I think that just a change of environment has a lot of impact on a player. Because, like, Christian Vasquez, 
was with the Boston Red Sox since 2014. And then he was traded after what, eight years with the organization that could take a toll on someone mentally. It's probably had a big shock to him. Maybe it had some sort of impact. So he is 32. The the twins need another catcher. He's the best catcher on the market with Wilson Contreras out of the picture. Now I think you need to go get him. You have to spend money to win games. And Christian Vasquez is your best chance. You're bringing in a two-time World Series champ, one of the better defensive catchers in baseball, a guy who could potentially hit 250, 260. Not much pop, but he will give you a couple home runs a season, and that's all you're asking for. Now let's talk about the kind of the big topic that everyone's been talking about on Twitter and everywhere, Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa, it was reported by Ken Rosenthal on Wednesday afternoon that the teams in on Carlos Correa is the Minnesota Twins, the San Francisco Giants, and the San Diego Padres. Well, now the Padres are out of the mix because they just signed Sander Bogarts for an 11-year deal at $280 million, which is kind of insane because Bogarts will now be 41 when that deal is up. Doesn't make any sense to me. I think the Padres just like to spend money and I don't really know if they know what they're fully doing. I think they just think that if they buy all these players at a really high cost, that's going to equal wins. It hasn't really worked out for them in the past, but we're talking about the Twins, not the Padres. Carlos Correa, I still, and I've always said that I think he will become a Minnesota Twin long-term. He wants to be here. It's up to the Twins. Now, there was an article that just came out by the San Francisco Chronicle. Of course, they're a little biased, but they claim that they're the... Another phone call when I'm doing this? They claim that they're the front runners for Carlos Correa. I don't really believe it. But the Minnesota Twins are in on Carlos Correa. He wants to be here. His wife loves to be here. And to me, if the Twins can actively show that they're trying to win games by going out and getting pitching, going out and buying players like Christian Vasquez or signing Carlos Rodon, who we'll get to in a second, I think that speaks volumes to Carlos Correa because what let's just say the San Francisco Giants offer him 10 years, 360, and the Twins are offering 10 at 340. What difference really is 20 million to him over a 10 year span? Like, obviously, everyone would love that 20 million, but I think when it comes down to it, I think his, his family having an input on where they want to stay has a massive impact on where he will go. So if his wife really loves Minnesota, he loves the team. He loves being here and playing a target field. I feel like that outweighs the 20 plus million or whatever he could get with the Giants. He's still getting 340, 310, whatever, whatever the contract may be. He's still getting 300 plus million over a decade. But when it comes down to it, I do think that a large part of his decision will come down to what's best for his family. And ultimately, I do think that that is Minnesota. We'll see what happens. I'll continue to break it down. I'll write out articles and I'll obviously, maybe I'll even do an emergency podcast to do a Carlos Correa because that is a massive move for the organization. And of course, if they pivot, they could go to Dansby Swanson, who there hasn't been much steam on with the Twins until yesterday. Now they're talking about that the Twins are looking at Dansby Swanson as a potential backup. But I've always kind of believed it to be true that he wants to stay on the East Coast. We'll see where he lands, but I wouldn't really bet on Dansby Swanson. 
Carlos Rodon, is there really a chance that the Twins could sign both? I want to say who wrote the article. Maybe it was John Hyman, but obviously you can't believe anything he says with a arson judge going to the San Francisco Giants tweet. But I believe it was him that said if the Twins miss out on Correa, that's when they will start going heavily in on Carlos Rodon. I don't know how much of that is true because if you're already going all in on a shortstop and you need a clear-cut number one, why would you not go sign Carlos Rodon? And that's actually something I missed on. I'm talking about Luis Arise. The Twins are actively looking to trade Luis. Not actively, I don't know. But the Twins are looking to trade Luis Arise for a pitcher because they're seeing how much it's going to cost them to sign a pitcher. Okay, so let's say you trade for a number one pitcher, ace, whatever. That guy's not going to be making $7 million a year. He's still going to be making a large chunk of money. Okay, so you're getting a pitcher back who's making a large chunk of money, plus you're losing assets and prospects and your best hitter in the lineup. Doesn't that cost more to you long-term or to this franchise than to just spend five years at $180 million for Carlos Rodon? I think it does. I would rather just sign Carlos Rodon at that price instead of losing Luis Arise prospects to sign to trade for another starting pitcher who's making a lot of money. There's just, I don't see that kind of thing in there. So if you sign Carlos Correa, I think you have to go for Carlos Rodon. And to me, I don't know, maybe I'm just overthinking it, but obviously the quote of the Twins are Scott Boris's tweet saying, or the quote of him saying that the Twins are fishing in the ocean and not one of their 10,000 lakes. Rodon is represented by the same agent as Carlos Correa. Could he be somewhat hinting that because they're fishing in the ocean that they're targeting Rodon too? Or that they are actively trying to get both? I think it could be. Just because you're trying to get Carlos Correa at a 10, 340, 320, whatever it is, deal. How does one player make you fishing in the ocean? Obviously, this one player is really, really, really good. And he's a game-changing type of player. But to me, that almost signals that they are going for Carlos Rodon too. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But you have to go and get Carlos Rodon if you want to be. If the Twins go and get, obviously this is a huge pipe dream, but if the Twins somehow got Christian Vasquez, Carlos Correa, and Carlos Rodon, that is an A++++ offseason. And the Twins will be very competitive next season. And if the Polos are so worried about spending money, they are a top 10 richest owner in the in baseball and they keep talking about well fans aren't showing up to games well it's because you're not really putting out the most competitive team out there pull ad if you put up competitive if you put out a competitive team and the team starts winning fans will show up if you can, can if you continue to put out crap we're not going to go spend 14 dollars on parking plus a ticket plus whatever to eat or drink there it all adds up and if you take your family to the game that's four you're talking about a potential $150 plus day, whatever. Go and spend money on players. You have the money to do so. If you go and spend the money on them, you'll see the revenues come back to you. And we'll be draft. I'm not going to talk about it too extensively, but the Twins did have the 13th pick. They moved all the way up to fifth in the lottery. And all I got to say is, it's nice to see a Minnesota, twin, Minnesota team finally do well in a lottery. Now let's end things with our usual MVP rough week, and underrated. My MVP, Anthony Edwards, 
rough week. I got to give it to Kirk Cousins and underrated. I will give it to Duke Shelley. Now we kind of already talked about Anthony Edwards, but he's been taking full advantage of Carl Anthony Towns being on the lineup. I'm not going to go too far into this because I just did, but he is taking full advantage, dropping 28 points a night, six steals. He's doing it all. He's putting the team on his back. And I want to see this consistently over a long stretch. And will the narrative around Anthony Edwards becoming a number one option on a winning team will start to be in full effect. Now, Kirk Cousins, again, we talked about him, so I don't want to go too far. He made bad passes. He wasn't on the same page. They could have easily won that game more if he just made the right pass. 173 yards, one touchdown. Should have probably been two picks. Now, my underrated, we have not talked about him yet. Duke Shelley, he's struggled pretty much anywhere on the field. But when it comes to the red zone, the guy is probably the most lockdown corner I've ever seen. It feels like every time they target him, he's there talking shit. He's, you know, he's getting hyped up. He's ready to go. He's energized. And it's so much fun to watch. In that Jets game, he was targeted eight times and three passes were caught. That is a 37.5% percentage of caught passes. He allowed a passer rating of 54.7. And it's just great to see a corner who's undersized at 5'9", 180 pounds, play really physical. Sometimes it comes back to bite him a little bit, but he's playing great in the red zone and he's shutting down passes that are coming his way. He's looked better than Andrew Booth Jr. He He's really played his way that I think that next season the Vikings should bring him back or at least bring him into like a camp invite or something. He deserves it. He's been playing really well in the red zone. It's actually really fun to see him do what he's doing when it matters most on defense. So that wraps up today's episode. Be sure to follow Let's Talk Minnesota Sports on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow my accounts on Twitter at Let's Talk Twins, Let's Talk Wolves, Let's Talk Vikes, and Let's Talk Wild. Thank you all for listening. Cheers. Thank you.